is the Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. An Iowa truck driver, Curly Richardson, was drafted into the United States Army in February 1944 to serve at the very height of World War II. After training in Texas, Richardson was shipped off to Europe, where he rose to the rank of sergeant. His unit eventually ended up in the Hürtgen Forest on the border of Belgium and Germany. The World War II historians among us know what's coming next. The Germans launched their most aggressive offensive against Allied forces on December 16, 1944, what would become known in history books as the Battle of the Bulge. Two days into the offensive, Richardson was riding in a jeep with another sergeant when they ran into a German ambush. The Germans opened fire, and the jeep crashed into a ditch. Richardson was shot in the gut. He was apprehended by German forces and sent to a nearby abbey the Germans had converted into a hospital. There, Richardson ended up on the operating table of a German doctor named Ludwig Gruber. Richardson was in bad shape when he lay before Dr. Gruber on that winter day, shortly before Christmas, 1944. The bullet had shredded Richardson's bowels, nicked his liver, and caused other internal damage. It looked hopeless. Dr. Gruber's Nazi commanding officers told him to move on to other patients, rather than wasting his time trying to save a grievously wounded American. Gruber pretended not to hear them. He spent hours in surgery with Richardson. He resected his bowels and otherwise pieced Richardson back together. Dr. Richardson, Dr. Gruber's superiors barked at him. Why would he spend so much time on an enemy when so many Germans needed help? By that time, the doctor argued that it was moot. His work was done. Only time would tell whether the American soldier would live. Richardson survived. 
A few years after the war, Richardson wrote to Dr. Gruber to thank him for his exceptional skill as a surgeon and for his courage in defying his superiors. Gruber wrote back, expressing his joy at Richardson's survival, and the two became pen pals. Gruber married after the war, had three sons, and went on to practice as a doctor in post-war Germany into his 80s. He died in 1988. Richardson returned to driving a truck and later a school bus in Iowa. He married and had a son, and he died in 1996. Years later, Richardson's son, Stephen, traveled to Germany to meet Gruber's family so that he could personally convey his deep gratitude for what Dr. Gruber had done. The circumstances of this story are in some respects extraordinary, heroic even, but in other respects, this is what doctors and nurses around the world do day in and day out. They use their skill and training to heal the sick, and they do so without regard to a person's nationality, politics, religious beliefs, race, ethnicity, or character. They operate on criminals as well as the most esteemed in the community. This is the moral beauty of the medical profession. It is a ministry committed to healing people, all people, no matter who they may be. The medical arts rest on the conviction that every human being has dignity and deserves care. It is not for us to decide who should or shouldn't be healed based on a fleeting perception of a person's character or worthiness. For the truth is we are all, each one of us, saint and sinner. For within the soul of every human being, there is the capacity for goodness as well as for evil. And God alone can see the complete picture of a person's life. The great Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy once put it this way, one of the most pervasive delusions is that every man can be categorized in some particular way, said to be kind, wicked, stupid, energetic, apathetic, and so on. People are not like that. We may say of a man that he is more often kind than cruel, more often wise than stupid, more often energetic than apathetic, or vice versa. But it could never be true to say of one man that he is uniformly kind or wise, and of another that he is uniformly wicked or stupid. Yet we are always classifying each other in this way. And it is wrong. Human beings, Tolstoy continues, are like rivers. The water is one and the same in all of them, but every river is narrow in some places, flows swifter in others, here is broad, there still, or clear, or cold, or muddy, or warm. It is the same with people. Every man bears within him the germs of every human quality, and now manifests one, now another, 
and frequently he is quite unlike himself while still remaining the same person. End quote. This is what the book of Jonah is about in large part. While we tend to remember the story of Jonah for its delightfully comic scene of the wayward prophet ending up in the belly of a whale, it is much deeper theologically than that. And its point, among others, is its insistence on the dignity of every human creature, its critique of self-righteousness and the perils of human beings judging one another, and its revelation of just how boundless our God's compassion is. Let's go back and remember Jonah. The drama of the story is initially set in motion by God's request that Jonah travel to the dreaded city of Nineveh to preach a message of repentance to its people. This can't possibly be right, Jonah says to himself. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and its people are Israel's arch enemies, notorious for their brutal and immoral behavior. Jonah is quite sure that they don't deserve God's attention, much less forgiveness, and he isn't about to besmirch his prophetic reputation by preaching to some reprobates. And so in round one of the story, Jonah simply ignores God's command and heads in the opposite direction on a ship to Tarshish. And for that miscalculation, God sends a storm that nearly capsizes the boat. Now terrified and sensing that this must be God's punishment for his disobedience, Jonah offers to be thrown overboard, not wanting his innocent shipmates to drown for his misdeeds. And even though he probably deserves to be drowned, our ever-merciful God refuses to let that happen, enlisting our friend, the whale, to save the day by swallowing Jonah whole and then vomiting him up on the beach for a second try. And so we come to round two, which is the focus of today's lesson, where the contrite Jonah reluctantly travels to Nineveh to do what God asks. Still not convinced that God knows what he is doing, Jonah merely mouths a pathetically unconvincing sermon of doom and gloom, lest the Ninevites repent. But lo and behold, to everyone's astonishment, the Ninevites hear God's word, confess their wrongdoing, and change their ways. And for this, God suspends their sentence showing them quite undeserved compassion and forgiveness, which, of course, infuriates the holier-than-thou Jonah even more. The takeaways from this marvelous story are several. First, it teaches us something important about God. God never gives up on us, no matter how awful we behave or how stubborn we are. This is true for the Ninevites, just as it is true for our petulant prophet. God is endlessly forgiving. Second, the story illustrates Tolstoy's earlier point that all of humanity is a mysterious and ever-changing mix of saint and sinner, 
Nobody is purely good or purely evil. As a result, our penchant for judging one another almost always backfires. Wicked is the word we use to condemn someone who is not sinning the same way we are. The reason Jesus teaches, judge not lest ye be judged, is because we are usually wrong in our judgments both about others and ourselves. Third, as Jonah's character reveals with such exquisite comedy, self-righteousness can be the most blinding of human disabilities. What Jonah couldn't see is that faithfulness does not mean being perfect, much less a judge of others' imperfection. Faithfulness means being an obedient ambassador to others of God's message of mercy. Faithfulness is not us trying to be like God, but rather letting God be in us. Not self-righteousness, but Christ-righteousness. Finally, and I think this is an especially important message for our time, the book of Jonah is also an invitation to talk to our enemies rather than dismiss them. Remember, the central task God gives to Jonah is to meet and speak with those he cannot stand. Get over yourself, God keeps telling Jonah. I insist that you go and talk to those whom you regard is beyond redemption. In sending Jonah to Nineveh, God is not, I think, merely testing Jonah's obedience. God is also trying to open Jonah's eyes to the dual truths that one, we are often our own worst enemies, and two, that those we perceive to be our enemies, in fact, have good in them and are capable of change. But in order to make change happen, both in ourselves and in those whom we do not like, people need to honestly and humbly encounter one another, rather than diminishing or demonizing the other. And then together, together, we need to confess our common waywardness, turn our lives around, and give thanks to the God whose mercy knows no bounds and is the only one who can save us from ourselves. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire, part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You can find us at htelc.com. And don't forget, you are loved.